You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. And we want to be able to bless you guys with that. And so again, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. And when you get there, please stand with me for the reading of the word. And again, we're in Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. One day... When Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home, their father Reuel said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah and she gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Providence, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone, and good morning to you all. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, If it is your first time, I wanted to just reiterate what Scott already said. We're so glad you're here. Thanks for making us a part of your week. Um, We're excited to continue the journey through the book of Exodus that we've kicked off at the beginning of the year. Um, And we've been kind of walking through verse by verse, uh, line by line, as best as we can. Uh, the story of the Exodus, the story of God's covenantal promises coming to fruition in the life of Moses and the children of Israel as they make their way out of Egypt and on the way to the promised land. So last week we left off uh, in the story where Moses was saved from imminent danger and death. Um, His mother placed him in the reeds by the Nile according to the edict that was given forth by the Pharaoh of the time. And he was just a child in a uh, basket of bulrushes with tar to basically patch the holes. And it just so happened as Miriam, his his big sister stood by watching from a distance that Pharaoh's daughter makes her way by, by the providence of God and has compassion on baby Moses, asks Miriam to get a Hebrew woman to nurse the child. And Miriam goes and grabs her mom and says, go grab your son. And lo and behold, Moses makes his way into the palace. And so this morning we pick up, uh, if, if this was a movie, this would be where the screen goes black and it comes back with Moses as an adult, okay? That's what we're picking up. It's, uh, and it's not just uh, 18-year-old Moses. Most of the commentators would say this is probably more closer to 40-year-old Moses. Moses is a grown man. Um, he, has, he has been living in Egypt for a long time. He's been taught by uh, the Egyptians. He's been taught by uh, in the palace. He's most likely a very well-educated man. He's seen a lot. He knows a lot. Uh, I heard well, one pastor say, you know, most people know a little about something. Moses was most likely a man who knew a lot about a lot. 
And so he's a wise man, a very uh, educated man, and he's going to make his way into the streets of Egypt and see some injustice. And we're going to talk a little bit about facing injustice, uh, but I want to do as best as I can to rush to the end because there's a couple things that are going on in this text, and the most important one, I think, comes at the very back end as we see not just that God's moving forward the storyline of redemption in, in Israel through Moses, but that there's a greater and grander picture that we see uh, in these two stories here. So before we jump in, I'd love to pray for us. If you would join me, I just want to ask the Spirit to speak to us through God's Word. If you'll bow your heads, I'll pray. Father, we, we humble ourselves before you, and we just say to you now, thank you for this sacred moment that we get a chance each and every week not just to sing and worship your name, but to receive our daily bread from your word. We submit ourselves now recognizing that we are not the arbiters of truth, but your word is truth. Sanctify us now by the power of your spirit as we read your word and allow your word to read us, to wash over us. Holy Spirit, we ask now that you would meet us each uniquely where we are and give us all that we desperately need in order to help us to not just live our lives in a way that pleases your heart, but to receive the gospel afresh this morning. We trust you, God, and we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Okay, I want to start reading verse 11. I'm just going to read the first story. So we got a series of two different stories kind of jammed into one here. Uh, I want to read the first story, starting in verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people, and he looked upon their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. So two times we see here that Moses is identifying himself as the writer of Exodus with the Hebrews, even though he's grown up and been raised in the Egyptian palace. So Moses identifies himself with the lower class, despite the fact that he actually has lived an upper class life. Um, And he goes out and he sees the Egyptian beating up on the Hebrew man. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered him, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid, and he thought, surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So here we see Moses most likely making his way around the land of Goshen, or at least near where the Hebrews were, and seeing firsthand the injustice that he knows is a reality in the land of Egypt. And he snaps. He he has a moment where he snaps in anger. It says he looks to his right and to his left, suggesting that Moses knows what he is about to do is illegal and wrong. And he murders this Egyptian man, kills him, And then he hides his body in the sand and they all kind of run away. The Bible then records that a few days later, he's kind of walking around and he sees two two Hebrews struggling together, a different instance. And he turns to the man that Moses deems to be in the wrong by striking his brother. He says, why are you hitting your brother? And that man turns to him and says, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Interesting, there's foreshadowing here. The answer to that is soon to be God, who is going to make him a prince and judge over all of Israel. But nonetheless, he has not been made prince and judge over all of Israel yet. And the other tongue-in-cheek comment here is that he is, however, a prince of Egypt, right? Because he is the Pharaoh's daughter's son. And so Moses, though, is shocked. He doesn't take this uh, 
much offense to this as much as he thinks, oh man, now more people must know about this. And he's right. Pharaoh hears about this. Moses flees. So he's terrified, right? He, people know about it. Um, now the Pharaoh knows about it. And it says point blank that now that the Pharaoh hears about this, he's going to kill Moses. And so Moses is a man on the run now. He goes from being the baby who's about to die uh, to the prince in Egypt. And now he's a fugitive man on the run in exile. So it's a quick kind of rise and fall, right, of Moses. Uh, and the Bible records that he's now sitting by a well. So both of these stories in this text are about injustice. And we're going to get into each of them individually and what uniquely we find in both stories. But I think the most important thing to do is probably to define justice. Because in, in a fallen world, if there's one thing that is a certainty, it's that you and I are going to be, and we're going to find ourselves on both sides of injustice, either as perpetrators or as victims. And obviously, this is a sliding scale, right? So there are larger issues of justice and smaller issues of justice. A smaller issue of justice is when I give my son uh, one jelly bean and Jane two because she's beautiful and I love her and I want to give her two. And my son looks at me like, that's not legit. And it's not legit, but I don't care. I'm going to do that because I am the arbiter of jelly beans in my home. That's a smaller issue of injustice, right? And then there's larger issues of injustice and they kind of grow as... Uh, they grow in intensity, uh, injustice that involves malice and murder and strife and thievery and not just uh, ill will towards another, but, uh, but harm towards another, whether it be by their property or by their own very bodies. You know, you can kind of go on and on and on uh, to talk about injustice, but it's important to start with the truth that we're going to find ourselves on both sides of that line of injustice as we live. But in order for us to really get into the text, I think we have to also define what biblical justice is. What is biblical justice? And here's my best shot at it. It can be defined as the appropriate commendation or rewards, condemnation and retribution that corresponds with God's law and standard of truth. I'll say that again. The appropriate commendation or rewards or condemnation and retribution that corresponds with God's law and standard of truth. So, in other words, justice has everything to do with how we understand righteousness. Doing the right thing or the wrong thing, choosing the good or the evil. You'll see this theme all throughout the Bible. It even starts right in the beginning with the knowledge of good and evil, following up with Cain and Abel, and God telling Cain, if you choose the right, will you not be accepted? Will you not be rewarded? Will you, will you not receive my commendation, not condemnation? See, Cain was upset that Abel received God's commendation, and he did not. And so, if we don't understand what righteousness, what the good and the evil, the, the wrong and the right, then it's impossible to really define justice. So it looks something like this. When someone chooses the good and then is harmed for that good, that would be an injustice, right? So like an example for me when I was growing up in the classroom, the teachers had a euphemism for, for my talkative and boisterous nature. They said, he has a voice that carries. That's what they told my parents. And so that was their euphemism for telling me I'm loud, I'm obnoxious, and I talk too much. And you need to tell your kid to zip it, okay? And so that naturally would get me into trouble. And I remember uh, there's a few distinct times, and I'm talking like 98%, 99%, I was the perpetrator. But there's these rare times where when you get known for doing something that's wrong, someone else might do something that's wrong. Let's say your friend, and then the teacher blames you for it. And you look at your friend and you're thinking, this is the time where your friend's going to say, 
hey, it wasn't him this time, it was me. And then your friend looks at you and smiles and says, nothing. And that's an injustice, right? You're angry. Why would he not, why would he not tell the truth? So now you get the retribution for that which you did not do, right? Okay, but then there's the inverse, and that's when someone chooses the evil, and then they are rewarded or permitted to continue on in that evil without any retribution, right? So this is like someone who does something wrong. Let's go back to my friend who smiles at me. And then every time you watch that friend to get a reward for something, you can't help but think, that snake. He doesn't deserve that. I know what he really deserves, but he didn't get it. I got that. This is, what, this is kind of the essence of injustice. Now, once again, on a sliding scale, you know, you could take this as far as you want it, but you see it all over the place. You know, whole podcasts are created about it. It's why, like, I think crime podcasts are so popular. It's because you see someone who's wrongfully accused, let's say. That's an injustice. And, and we want to we get down to who actually did it because the injustice is not just that this person received that which they did not deserve, but that this person over here who is unbeknownst to us or unknown to us, they never got what they did deserve. You guys catching this? That's the idea of justice. Now, the cultural problem that we run into today is the question that keeps getting brought up is, well, who can really know what's good and evil, though? That seems to be the most common refrain. Like, well, who's to say who's wrong and who's right? Who's to say what's true and what's false? Who's really to say what's, what's good and bad? You know, it's all, kind of, it's all kind of hazy. Now, here's the issue with that. Romans 1 actually says that intrinsically, God creates us with a conscience, creates us with an understanding, not only that there is a God, but that there is a God who has wired the universe in a way that has good and evil. And we intrinsically know this because our conscience will remind us when we've done the wrong and it'll lead us into the right, that God has given us this gift and that we were in his image, we were created so that we ultimately know this And Romans 1 says, but we suppress the truth that we just kind of push that down. And so we, what we do is we become more creative in the ways that we kind of finagle what's good and bad, what's right and wrong, and we just kind of, uh, we make it more muddy so that we don't feel that conscience pricking at us when we do the wrong. Because if more of our collective consciousness or our community will just affirm to us that ultimately our evil is good, then it makes us not feel as guilty when we do that evil. Or as C.S. Lewis said, he said, uh, the educated man that knows not God is just a more clever devil. He's just better at kind of finagling the morality, the kindergarten morality at some level that we all know. Like no one has to tell us that thievery is wrong. We just intrinsically sense that and know because God created us in his image that that's not right to steal or to kill or to harm. All of these things we know and the Bible tells us that we suppress the truth. But in case we pretended that we didn't know, God also revealed us to us in his word what is good and what is evil. So all the time what you're going to see in the word is these, this constant refrain from God, particularly with Moses, and then it's going to continue on. Choose you this day whom you will serve. I set before you life and death, good and evil, right and wrong. If you choose the good and you choose the right, then there will be these blessings. If you choose the evil, there will be, there will be death. And this is what is constantly represented in the Mosaic law as it's given forth. There's this idea that God sets before us good and evil, right and wrong. He clearly puts the delineations that he shows us what's different between the two. He even does this in the order of creation when he has the night and the day and he calls the day day and the night night and he gives us these kind of breaks of the waters and the land. He gives us a binary of good and evil. 
And God not only does this and weaves it into creation and weaves it into our very hearts with our conscience, but he also gives us his word, right? Listen to this in Psalm 97. This is uh, a psalm written about the character and nature of God. And this is what it says. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. So it's a good thing that God's the authority. Then it goes on. Let the, coast, the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. In a, in a little bit in Exodus, we'll actually see this. This is the key line though. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. So, in other words, there is no understanding of justice apart from him. They are the very foundation of his throne. To know what is just, we must know God. And that's why Romans 1 is such a key text because the scripture says in Romans 1, what can be known about God is plain to us, but we are suppressors of the truth. So foundationally, to understand justice, we have to understand who God is. God reveals himself to us, not just in creation, but in his word, so that we would know when we see injustice and we would know when we would see justice. Okay, now that I've laid that framework, the text, the question of this story, though, is not just about justice. It's what do we do when we're faced with injustice? Because hear me, the question's not whether you will be faced with it. The question's how will you react when you're faced with it? And you'll be on both sides of it. And you might even be, as Moses is here, the third party. You're not the perpetrator, you're not the victim, but you're the watcher. You're the observer. What do you do? Well, you can do what Moses does here, which I'm going to make the case. He he steps outside the purposes of God for himself by taking the reins and taking justice into his own hands. Or you could sin inversely by sitting idly by, keeping your head down, going along to get along and doing nothing. You see, Moses could have preserved himself here also, which I think would have been sin, by saying, I like the palace. I kind of like the status I got. And actually, Moses gets commended later in Hebrews by being the man that did not love Egypt and the, and the pleasures, the fleeting pleasures of sin, but instead identified himself with the Israelites. So there's a third way that the Bible's leading us to, and it's in the second story. But let's start with the first story. You see, the issue with Moses' response was not that he misdiagnosed what was going on. Like Moses didn't look at the situation and it's not, you know, have you ever had someone step in and tell you something like, uh, well, you need to hear the whole story because, you know, maybe the Hebrew was, you know, doing something wrong here and, you know, uh, you got to hear the whole story. Uh, you don't, you just walk in and, you know, make a snap judgment. I need to say this. The Bible actually lays that out as a prerequisite. It's why you need two or three witnesses. It's why they allow people to hear the whole story. It's why we literally have our system of justice as it is, the idea of innocence until proven guilty. Whole story comes out and then you make a a righteous judgment. And you know why that's true? All you got to do, you don't have to be a law student. You don't have to be legally trained. All you got to do is have been around kids. If you hear someone crying, you walk into the playroom. I walk into the playroom. My daughter's on the ground crying. My son looks at me with a craven face of, oh, no, I'm going to get in trouble. And my snap judgment is, he did something bad. She's hurt. You need to go to timeout until I figure out what's going on with you. Come here and let me console you. But you know what I've learned? My daughter's sneaky. She is sneaky. She's better at being a little bit fudging on the truth than Jonas is. Um, and she's better at crocodile tears. Like I know when my son's crying, it's just obvious. It just looks like it's animated. Uh, but when my daughter cries, like I could really be snowed because what'll happen is I'll say, are you being a phony? And then she'll laugh. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you were being a phony. And I didn't know it. And so unless I know the whole story of actually what happened, I could make a snap judgment and actually be unjust. That's not what happens here with Moses. 
I want to make that clear. He's not making some snap judgment. The guy's been around the block. He knows what's happening. This is wrong. And I don't think that what he did here was wrong because he actually misdiagnosed the situation. There's something else that's wrong about his response, but it's certainly not that the Egyptian was innocent. Okay, it's also important to say that he's not wrong because he felt the need to step in. No, because we know that sitting idly by would have been wrong too. This is kind of the inverse of, am I my brother's keeper, right? And then lastly, I want to say, and I didn't get to read the rest of Psalm 97 for the sake of time, but it's also not wrong what Moses did because it was like too strong. You know, sometimes you'll read that in commentators. They'll say, you know, the just, it, was, it was unjust because it was an eye for an eye. It's like he's beating him, but then he kills him, right? And I'm just reminded of the fact that we're about to get into a few chapters where God decides to judge the Egyptians by killing, I don't know, like all the firstborns. So it's not like God looked at the Egyptians and was like, no, they're, they're not too bad. Like God's about to send Moses into the palace and tell Pharaoh, you need to let my people go and repent or else I'm going to bring plagues. And these plagues are not like, listen, man, these are serious plagues. Hail that's coming down for days, destroying not just their cattle, but their crops, which you might think, okay, but it didn't kill them. Oh, it did kill them, but just in the slowest possible ways because now they have famine. Like Moses puts his staff in the Nile and it turns into blood. You're like, ooh, it's a cool chemistry project. No, that's their drinking water. Like these are intense things. So it's not like Moses like overstepped a little bit and he over-exaggerated the Egyptians' wickedness. No. So what is it? The act of slaying the Egyptian man was an act of justice that Moses presumed upon himself as having the authority to take, not relying on God to give him the authority to take it. Moses has yet to be anointed by God, given the authority delegated to him by God to be the prince and judge of Israel. And yet he decides he wants to take it early. This is, a, this is a classic kind of Saul moment before Samuel shows up, right? Taking that authority, which is not his. We are not called to take justice into our hands unless God has delegated an authority to us in order to exact that justice. This is what Romans 13 really was all about when Paul was talking about the Roman authorities and governors. We're not called to do this because we're not called to ascend upon a throne that is not ours, God sits on a throne of judgment that we do not. And so when we do this, what we do is ultimately we interpose ourselves into the place of God. We exact justice and anger. We presume it's our place to stand in that seat. It's our place to do what needs to be done. And so in doing so, we unwittingly exalt ourselves in a moment when we should not. And we do it for a number of reasons. A few that I see right off the top of my head is that Moses is angry. And isn't that relatable? Have you ever been mad? Once again, you don't have to be a biblical scholar here. Just be married or have kids or live. You can get mad. And there's nothing intrinsically sinful about anger. There is righteous anger and there is unrighteous anger. Here, Moses is righteously angry about an injustice. You can be unrighteously angry, though, about something. Like, for instance, when you're angry that you've been inconvenienced by your children versus they've actually sinned against you. This is like they spill milk and you're like, I am done with you. And then you rage. Not that I've ever done that or anything, but unbelief. Moses is, it's a passive act of unbelief. Our God has been silent for 40 years, no, 400 years. He is unaware. He's inactive. God cannot or will not save us. I need to act. That's what Moses does here. He is thinking very narrowly in a way that God is thinking broadly. He looks at one situation and says, I can fix this. God's intent is not to save one Hebrew man, but to save all the Hebrews. 
God's intent is to draw them all out of the tyranny, and Moses thinks that he can solve it by just solving this one issue. And it's an act of unbelief, which ultimately is an act of pride. And the act of pride looks something like this. Only I can make this right. Only I understand this fully. Only I can exact true and punitive judgment. Only I can stand in the place of God. The result of that kind of unbelief and pride is murder. That's what happens. You see death. Okay, but what about story two? So let's pick it back up. Verse 15 ended with Moses is sitting down by a well. He's a fugitive. He's in exile. He gets kind of kicked out of Egypt. And listen to verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and they drew water and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and they drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came home to their father, Rahuel, he said, How is it that you've come home so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, then where is he? Have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah and she gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So in a nutshell, the next story is something like seven, seven girls that uh, are coming on behalf of their father to, feed, to, to water their father's flock show up at the very well that Moses is at. And as they begin to water their flock, these shepherds show up, these male shepherds, and they drive them away. And out of just sheer strength, the women have nothing uh, that they can do in order to rectify the problem or the injustice. And so what does the Bible record? That Moses stands up for them and saves them from these worthless shepherds. He interjects himself. And you might say here, well, what's the difference between these two stories? Isn't it the same? Moses stood in the way and saved the man who was getting beaten by the Hebrew, and now he's saving the seven daughters. But don't miss the subtleties here. Moses did not strike down the shepherds despite their abuse, and he did not stand in judgment against him, and in so doing, stand in the place of God. Instead, he interposed himself in the place of the women. Instead of interposing himself in the place of God and enacting judgment, he stands into the place of the daughters and says, if you're going to harm anybody, then harm me. It's typical, you know, this is kind of like an old, you know, 30s movie, right? It's a John Wayne moment. The girl's getting mistreated by the guy who thinks he's tough, and then John Wayne shows up. It's like, you want to fight someone? Fight me. That's this moment. Hey, you wanna, if you want to pick a fight, pick on someone your own size. That's the kind of feeling here. Now notice, he's not exacting judgment by standing in the place of God. He's instead identifying with the afflicted. It's instead of an ascension, it's a descension. Instead of him ascending to the place of judgment, he descends into the place of the afflicted. And this is no small or even subtle difference. The Bible says that in standing up for them in this way, he saves them. And notice that in the first story, the guy whose life gets sacrificed or killed is the Egyptian servant. In the second story, the guy who lays his life down is potentially Moses. You see, Moses kills in the first one to get justice, and in the second one, he lays his life on the line, potentially getting killed. That's the difference, and it's key. It's key. The Christian is called to meet injustice in the world by mirroring Christ and standing in the place of the afflicted, standing with them, standing up for them. It's a substitutionary act of love. But it's an act of of love in faith that we trust that God is the ultimate judge. Romans chapter 12, uh, Paul tells the people of the church at Rome, 
do not take vengeance on yourself, brothers and sisters, but leave vengeance to God. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. That's what Paul encouraged the Roman church to do. Instead of unbelief, Moses, even passively, in his actions, he's saying, God knows, God hears, God is with me, God will protect me, God will preserve my life. God cares more about the afflicted than I could care about the afflicted. Isn't that key? Moses jumps into this fray with the Egyptian, and he thinks that he's all of a sudden the righteous one who cares more about the affliction of the Hebrews than God himself. God cares so much about the affliction of the Hebrews that he's about to save all of them, not just one single solitary slave. He's going, he's wiring the whole of history to bring about the most miraculous saving of an enslaved population that has ever been. But sometimes in our pride, we, we think that it has to be us. Instead, in the second story, Moses takes the place of humility. Rather than taking the place of God, he, he comes alongside the afflicted, the women. He stands in the gap for them. As we are called to stand in the gap for those who are weaker than us, we don't ascend to the place of God, we descend to the place of the lowly. Now notice the different results. The first one results in death. The second one results in life. The story goes like this. Reuel, or later on you're going to know that he has a second name, it's Jethro, says, hey, you guys got home early. Yeah, there was a man. He saved our lives. Why didn't you invite him for dinner? Girls go back. They invite him for dinner. He gets a, listen, he's a sojourner at this point. He has no home. He has no place. He gets a home. He gets a place. He gets a family, and he gets a bride. And then he gets a son, gets more children. One resulted in death, the other resulted in life. Okay, so this is, this is framing this story, and I want to put a bow on this so I can move to what I think is the, the real point of this story. But it's setting up here for us to understand the Exodus. Moses is called to be the deliverer of Israel. He is called to be the prince and the judge, but he needs to understand one thing and one very important thing right off the bat. He's not going to be the one to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt. God's going to do that. He doesn't get the glory. He's going to be the instrument. God's going to be God. And God's making this known to Moses right here because he has to get it into the skull of his servant. I am going to show Pharaoh that I am the Lord. Over and over again, God's going to say this. They will know that I am the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. We're going to get what that is later. The people of Egypt will know I am the Lord. This is a moment where God wants to show all the nations, all of the false gods are false, and I am the Lord. I am true. I wield all of the powers of creation. All of the plagues have purpose, and that purpose is to show all of these false gods are false, and I am the Lord. But Moses needs to know, if God is the deliverer, Moses is just the instrument. He's not the deliverer. God's the one who saves. Moses is the servant. God will enact the justice. Moses, you must simply stand, and I will fight for you. It's something like this. Moses, take the staff and hold it over. Put it in the Red Sea. I will part it. Hold it over the Red Sea. I will vanquish your enemies. Put your hand in your cloak. I will make it leprous. Put it back in. I will make it clean. Cast your staff down. I will make it a serpent. Grab its tail. I will make it a staff again. God does the miraculous stuff. Moses does the obeying. <laughs> Moses does the humbling himself and saying, God's the one who does it. Notice, go unto Pharaoh and say this. Warn him. You notice it never says, and Moses brought hail down. God brings hail down. Moses merely warns of what God can do. Okay. But what's the real thing that's happening here? 
The real thing that's happening here is it's setting up Hebrews to teach us about how Christ is the greater Moses. You see, the problem with our current, current cultural conversation about justice is not that there's not plenty of injustice to go around because, oh my goodness, there certainly is. The problem with our current conversation is that we're struggling with two questions that are interconnected, but they're foundational. Who writes the rules and who pays the price? Who writes the rules? Who pays the price? Because usually whoever writes the rules also decides who pays the price. But if we don't know those two questions, then ultimately we will be marauders just going throughout society, guns drawn, trying to make sure someone pays the price. Because when you've been victimized, you just want someone to pay. And if you don't know who wrote the rules and no one seems to be pointing to the the way, to the right direction, you're just going to end up getting vengeance, no matter if it's justice. But here's the thing. I think the church is uniquely poised to answer these questions if they're just unashamed of them. And here's what we know. God has written the rules. God has spoken loudly and clearly about what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's evil, what's just and what's unjust. God gave us the consequences for these. He also has told us that death is the consequence for the evil, for the sin. He has given us this clearly and obviously. But here's the total curveball. Then he said, I'll pay the price. Now that was unexpected. The innocent one said, I'll be the one to pay the price. God decided that he would take in our stead the punishment that's deserved. Like Moses, Christ did not presume the seat of judgment when he came to the earth. I want to read Philippians chapter 2. This is verses 5 through 11. Listen to this is a very famous verse in the history of the church because of what it communicates. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So rather than taking, grasping equality with God, sitting on the throne of judgment, which he rightly deserves, only the sinless ones can really judge. He doesn't, but instead he identifies himself with who? The criminals. Hence, Jesus was crucified between the thieves. And then what? So rather than doing what Moses did by sitting on the throne and just judging, Jesus didn't come to the earth and do Moses' first round. Instead, he comes and he identifies himself like Moses' second story with the lowly. But listen to this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the, this is the theme of the New Testament, that it's through that humbling of ourselves that exaltation comes from God. See, Moses, by being humble here, is going to be exalted into the princely position so that he will lead the captives out of Israel and into the promised land. It's not through him taking that seat himself. It's through God placing him in that seat. And he is the lesser. Christ is the greater. Christ, through his humility, although, listen, Jesus shows back up after the resurrection. He says something pretty astounding. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Now, what he could have said then is then sit down on the judgment seat and say, I'm about to call balls and strikes. And listen to me, friends, he will do this. One day, Christ will sit on the judgment seat and he will call balls and strikes. And it will be the day where there no longer is going to be any uh, squirming. 
There's not going to be any educated professors that start talking wrongs and rights. Well, isn't that a gray area? Christ will silence everyone. He will speak. But instead of Jesus doing that when he ascended, or before he ascended, he says, I'm going to extend forgiveness and grace and mercy to everyone who will believe on my name. So he offers the amnesty. He says, I'll pay the price, everyone who believes. You can be my child. Everyone who believes, you can be forgiven. Everyone who believes, you get mercy. Because there's two options. The first is if God writes the rules, God pays the price. There's the second side. Do you know what the second side is? If you write the rules, you pay the price. And that's what we're met with every day, that decision. Do we want to write the rules of our life so that we can feel some temporary you know, this is what the Bible calls it, a searing of our conscience that's numb so we don't have to feel too bad about ourselves. And then one day stand before God and say, well, who's gonna pay the price for this? Or do we wanna just accept right now, you know what? I'm fallen, broken, fallible. I'm not just a victim, but I'm a victimizer. I'm not just the one who, you know, someone has hurt, but I also hurt other people. And then accept that before God so that we can receive forgiveness and love and mercy and grace. Because Christ pays the price. Those are the two options. Here we see, and this is a a wonderful ending to this story. Moses brings the daughters of the father back to him, safe and sound. He's welcomed and he's rewarded with a bride. Jesus comes and he brings all the children of God back to the father. Everyone who believes on his name, he presents them to the father. says, I've brought them. Everyone who you've you've sent me to grab, I've grabbed. And then guess what? The bride is his. He receives the bride. It's the gospel. Christ interposing himself for us, standing in the way of us. But here's where Christ is the greater Moses. Whereas Moses simply stands in the way of the helpless victim, Christ interposes himself with the very criminals who do the harm. Jesus not not only goes and binds up the wounds of those who get hurt by bad people, he goes into the den of thieves and says, I ask you, Father, forgive even them. He goes amongst the criminals and offers them forgiveness. See, Jesus is not about only the business of showing mercy to the weak, but going into every strong man's house and saying, you're not as strong as you think you are, but I love you and I will forgive you. (laughs) And so in conclusion, when we're the ones who are mistreated or we feel the weight of injustice, we can cry out to Jesus because he has stood in our place. He is a sympathetic high priest. He has been there in a way that we could never imagine. Not only that, but we can also forgive our enemies. Why can we forgive our enemies? Because God has forgiven us in Christ. We can cry out to God to help us. And then when we're like Moses and we're the one who is the outside onlooker of injustice, we can stand up for our neighbor. We can stand in their place. We can identify with him. But then rather than taking into our own hands the justice, we can look to God for justice and ask him to right the wrongs. But the most important thing from this text, and I don't want to leave without saying it, is that we must see ourselves as the perpetrators of the injustice so that we can receive the greater Moses' gospel. We must see ourselves more like the Egyptian taskmaster, more like the worthless shepherds, so that we can see just how wonderful our Christ is. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, I pray there be an overwhelming sense of gratitude in our hearts that we not only can have our wounds bound up when we're hurt, 
but Jesus, that you come and find us when we're the ones doing the hurting and you still forgive us. Thank you, Jesus, that you can meet us in both places and that you have met us there. We ask now that you would bring us to that sense of repentance where we have tried to play your role, sit in your seat, give your edicts. And instead, Lord, we humble ourselves now under your mighty hand so that you would choose to exalt us as you see fit. Jesus, you are king and we are your grateful children. As we now take of your broken body symbolized in the bread and of your blood symbolized in the juice, we ask, would you feed us the sustenance we need? to not just know your gospel with our minds, but to treasure it with our hearts. We ask these things in your good name. Amen.